0: Anyway,
1: let's take our Bibles and we're going to look at Psalm 36. Psalm 36. And this is a psalm written by King David to the temple worship leader, the director of the choir and the musicians in the temple. And in this psalm, King David is contrasting human wickedness with God's goodness. Human wickedness and its results with God's compassion and its goodness. And it can be divided into three simple sections. It's only 12 verses. Section number 1 is verses uh, 1 through 4. It describes human wickedness. 1 through 4, human wickedness. Second section, 5 through 9, divine compassion, divine goodness. God's loving kindness is described. And then the third section, verses 10 through 12, we have David's prayer where he prays for, first of all, God's people, and second of all, he prays against God's enemies. Okay? So let's take these three sections one at a time. Section number one, uh, we have David's description of wickedness. And look at verse one. He says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. Now, this is a word that is spoken to someone's heart. Now, my translation says, an oracle within my heart concerning wickedness. In other words, this is a prophetic word that God gives David concerning the nature of wickedness. But I need to tell you that these first two verses are very difficult to translate into Hebrew. There are what we call variants. Okay? And a variant, when you see the word variant, (laughs) When you're studying, you know you're in trouble. Because there can be two different ways of translating the verse, which gives it two different meanings. And one variant says this. An oracle within his heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. In other words, it's the lost person who realizes deep down inside that he's a wicked person. So we're not sure what that is, but what you need to realize is there's an inner conviction about wickedness here. Okay? And that inner conviction uh, comes from God. He's the one that does the revealing to the human heart. That's why it's called an oracle. Now, here is the oracle. Here is uh, the, the truth of the matter. There is no fear of God before His eyes. this person that David is describing uh, believes that he can sin and get away with it. He can sin with impunity. In other words, he figures he can sin and in the future there's not going to be any judgment upon his life. So that's why he doesn't have a fear of God. If you feared God, guess what? You feared punishment. Right? Many times you obeyed your parents because you feared your parents when you were a kid. Didn't you? Not because you wanted to do what they told you to do. Because you feared the repercussions. This person has no fear even of God. The reason for the lack of fear, look at verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. He has an attitude problem. This is his attitude. We're going to see his attitude and we're going to see his actions. He flatters himself in his own eyes. Spurgeon says... When a person makes little of God, he makes much of himself. When you make little of God, and you don't give him flattery and praise, and you don't boast on him, you're going to make a lot about yourself. And so this individual (coughs) basically trades adoration for God for adulation for himself. And then it says at the end of verse 2, when he finds out his iniquity, and when he hates. So I'm going to read you the whole verse there. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity, when that's revealed to him, and when he hates. Here's a person that realizes that they are a very hateful person. They come to the realization that they're a wicked person. And when they do that, that's when they flatter themselves. When do you flatter yourself? It says... This person flatters himself when he realizes that he's a wicked person. When he realizes that he hates. So the flattery, in a sense, is a cover-up. So I'm not so bad. Somebody says, maybe through a a prophet. Maybe through reading the scripture. You discover that, or somebody through a sermon. You discover you're a sinner and you walk out So I'm not so bad. I'm a pretty good person. You flatter yourself. And so that's the win of the flattery. So, for he flatters himself, verse 2, in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. So that's his attitude. Now look at his actions, verse 3. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. That means There's a couplet here. One, he does things that are very evil, wicked, and very deceptive. He says deceptive things. Wickedness is obeying God, disobeying God willingly. You know what's right and you say, I don't care. And in a calculating way, you disobey God. That's wickedness. Deceit, speaking words of deceit, means that you're lying. You're always coming up with schemes. Look what it says in verse, into verse 3. He has ceased to be wise, that individual. And he has ceased to do good. Now, that's very important. Because it means at one time he did wise things, and at one time he was good. This identifies David's enemies. His enemies aren't the heathen nations. He's not talking about some lost person that belongs to, you know one of these foreign nations who doesn't know God. He's describing a wicked person who at one time was not wicked, but was wise. He's describing a person who at one time was not evil, but did good. But now they've ceased doing that. In today's parlance we'd say they're church members who walked in awe, got baptized, started off well, accepted the word of God, did what it said, and now they've ceased to do this. So David here is concerned with people within the nation of Israel who have now turned their back on God. And they're not following His commandments and they're not doing good. These are rebellious Israelites. Look at verse 4. He devises wickedness on his bed. In other words, when he should be resting, he's plotting how he can do something evil the next day. Now he can do something evil, maybe even against King David. So the fact that he says he sets, uh, he devises wickedness on his bed means he plots. So we're not talking about a person who is a member of Israel who slips into sin or falls into sin or stumbles into sin. This is a person that plots sin. That's what a wicked person is. <coughs> Now we can also, even David slipped into sin. He commits adultery. But that was a sin of passion. That's a sin of the moment. Uh, What happens is that this is a person who actually plots on their bed and does the wickedness. In verse 4 it says, he sets himself in a way that is not good. Notice that you set yourself, you put your feet down, you plant, and you say, this is the direction I'm going to go. This is the path I'm going to take. So, this is a person who indeed is plotting these things. He sets himself in a way that is not good. So, he ceases being good and he proactively does that which is evil. Now, I want you to notice, in fact it says, uh, at the end of verse 4, he does not abhor evil. That's what you should do. That's what I should do. We should hate evil. That's not what he hates. He hates righteousness. He hates good people. He did not like to be around those kinds of people. Now, very interestingly, you'll look in verse 1, you see the word heart. In verse 2, at the end of the first sentence, you see the word eyes. Heart and eyes. In verse 3, you see the word mouth. In verse 4, you see the word, he sets himself, which is his feet. He plants his feet. And so what he's saying is from his head to his toes, from top to bottom, this person's wicked. This person's evil. Everything about him plots evil. That's what his whole life has turned out to be. Uh, We don't know a lot of people that start off good people and end up bad people, but let me tell you, there are some. And I remember the first time I met one like that. It blew me away. He was a student at seminary, and I thought he was a very godly person. Had a great time with this guy for the first year, and then I hear he leaves the seminary and he becomes a very evil person. He downs everything he believes, and I couldn't believe that there were people, that are people like that, but evidently they've been around forever. So what he's doing here is describing the nature of wickedness and evil, human wickedness. Now, beginning in verse 5, he describes God's loving kindness. God's loving nature. Now, look what he says in verse 5. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Now, the New King James says your mercy. The word there is a Hebrew word which means your loving compassion. Your loving kindness, your grace toward us. It is in the clouds, it reaches into the heavens, which means it reaches to the highest heights, beyond beyond comprehension. Remember, David and his people never were in the clouds. They weren't like we are. We can get an airplane and go up in the clouds. So, they couldn't do that. They couldn't go up in the heavens and fly above the, the ground. They didn't know what that was like. They could look up there, but they really didn't know what it was like. And so what he says, your loving kindness, your compassion toward people is to the highest heights. It's beyond comprehension. That's what he's saying there. Verse 6, Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Now, he could mean your righteousness is always dependable, it's stable, like a mountain never moves. He could mean that. But a mountain is the highest point on earth. You could get that high. So, he says, your righteousness is like the great mountains, the highest mountains. And your judgments, meaning your justice, are like a great deep, which is the ocean. So he says, your righteousness and your justice is like the highest thing on earth and like the deepest thing on earth, the bottom of the ocean. It's that big. And they had never been to the bottom of the ocean. They didn't have submarines. The pressure, the air pressure down there would, you know, kill somebody. You can only go down so far without air tubes or whatever you call those things, air tanks, which they didn't have. So again, what he's saying is, you know, your love, your compassion, your justice uh, is, you know, reaches the the highest heights and reaches the lowest depths. So that's what he's trying to say here. So that's the character of God's loving kindness, his compassion. Now, his compassion is for those uh, that are in the covenant. This is what we call covenant love. That's God made a covenant with Israel, and guess what? He said, here's the bargain I'm going to make with you. I'll be your God, and I'll love you, and I'll protect you, and I'll do all these things. And guess what? God's faithful to His covenant. doesn't matter what the extreme is in your life. God will be faithful to that covenant. But these people that He describes, guess what they've done? They've broken the covenant. God's faithful to the covenant, and these people have broken the covenant. So this is the character of God's loving kindness. And then he says right at the end of verse 6, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. So uh, the word preserve means you protect, you save, you deliver man and beast. Uh, What does that mean? God takes care of our dogs. No, there are dogs that die and get hit in the street. It's not talking about this at all. It's talking about the covenant that God has with Israel. Remember when God uh, sent the death angel in Egypt to deliver his people? Did he deliver the animals too? Even the firstborn of the animals were spared. And God takes care, he says, in this, of the people and basically their belongings. So that's probably what he's trying to say here. He preserves you. He protects you. And then in verse 7, he gives this joyful ex- exclamation. He says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. It's just like right in the middle, he just interjects this. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. What does that word precious mean? What's the difference between a. Precious stone and a semi-precious stone. The difference between, you know, $50 and $5,000. Something that's precious is something that's treasured. And see, David says, God's loving kindness is compassion, is mercy. is something that we should be treasuring. And he treasures it. And so he just interjects that thought. How wonderful God's loving kindness, is, compassion is. And then he says in verse 7, Therefore, knowing that, knowing that God's going to be faithful to His covenant, and that His loving kindness is precious, therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Now, here he's basically saying, based on God's covenant, this is what God's people do. He calls them the children of men, but he's simply saying those people that are in the covenant, this is what that is. Not only the original people that came out of the Exodus, but every person under the covenant finds their protection under the wings of God's protection. It's like a mother hen puts its wings out and gathers its little chicks and protects them. That's what God does. He's our protector. And that's talking about God's protection. there. And then they say this, David says this. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Now notice that God not only protects us, puts his wings <coughs> over us and protects us, but God sustains us. You see that? He sustains us, he gives us what we need. To live, the way it puts it is, we're abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. Everything that God has is ours. And we should be abundantly satisfied with the provisions that He gives us. And then in verse 8, He says, And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Now there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. That word pleasures in the Hebrew sounds exactly like the word Eden. Hebrew, only it's in the plurals, and what he's saying is this, for those who trust God, based on his character, you can trust him, for those who trust God, it's like being in the Garden of Eden, and everything you need is right there, in fact, it's like being in a lot of Garden of Eden. And everything you need is provided for you. All you need to do is trust him. And if you trust him, then he says, right there in verse 8, you will be abundantly satisfied with the fullness. So why aren't we abundantly satisfied with the fullness of God's provision? Maybe we don't trust him. We'll talk about that a little bit later. You need to think about that. Many of us are not abundantly satisfied in the fullness that God has for us. We don't trust Him to protect us, we don't trust Him to provide for us, and therefore we live like paupers in comparison with the way God wants us to live. Now that's really important that you get that. Because we don't trust Him for the protection and the provisions that he wants to give us and has guaranteed to give us because of the covenant. We live like Paul. I want you to know something God is not affected by this recession, not one bit. So now you have to say, but I'm losing, I lost 10% of my wealth, you know, one day. What am I going to do? Well, how about if it was a Great Depression? What would you do? You gonna stop trusting the Lord? You gonna trust the Lord? What you're gonna do? You can't trust the systems. They have, they have they have faults. They're gonna fail at times. You do what you can do, but you trust the Lord. And we're gonna see why that's so important in just a moment. Now look at verse nine. The reason why. We can trust Him. The reason why we should trust Him. And this is all available. Verse 9. For with you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see the light. Now, He talks about a fountain there. What comes from a fountain? Water. That's what You, you need water to live. He's, he's going to provide what you need to live. You see light. There's another thing you need to live. You need light. Because things grow. And light affects growth. So he provides our water. He provides our food. And this is what it's saying. He's the source of all that. That's why it says it the way it does. For with you is the fountain of life. In you, in you we see the light. He's the source of these things. So we go to the source. Many of us have gone to things that are secondary. Now... The Gospel writer John applies this to Jesus. It says, In Him was the light. And that light was the light of the world. And he makes sort of a spiritual application out of it. So here we see God's faithfulness, God's loving kindness. Now, we come to the third section and we have this prayer section. And first of all, David prays for God's people. Look at verse 10. Oh, continue... Your loving kindness, he says to God, to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Not to those who devise wickedness in their heart, but to the upright in heart. So what he's doing, he's saying, God... Provide all that you say you will provide: your compassion, your loving kindness, your grace, everything that we need, to those who know you. Verse ten: that's the same as those who trust you. To trust God is to knowing, and those that are upright in heart, those that are not plotting wickedness. That's what he prays for: God's people. And then verse eleven, he switches. From praying for God's people, he prays for himself. He makes the prayer personal, okay, personalizes it. Let not the foot of the pride, meaning the wicked people, the prideful, come against me. Now we discover what they've been plotting. They've been plotting David's overthrow within Israel. Let not the foot of the pride or the prideful come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. They want to basically cast David out of office and out of the kingdom. So now he prays for himself. That's basically the conclusion of the prayer. And so what we have there is he prays for others, he prays for himself, and then his final sentence, which sort of wraps all this up, is very interesting. Before he even finishes praying, he gets the assurance that the prayer is answered. Before he gets up from his knees, he he knows God's answered it. It's like he has a vision of it. And uh, it's very interesting. Look how he describes it. There! It's like he sees it. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen in faith. He sees the result. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen. means they haven't succeeded. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. It means they don't have the ability to get up. Their defeat is irreversible. It, victory for David and his people is assured. So, when you look at that, you discover that here's one class of people, the wicked. They started out right, but they ceased being good. They started becoming evil. They rebel against God. We see God's loving kindness, He's always faithful to the covenant, He never breaks it. You can trust him, and therefore, trust him. And then he prays for his people, and he prays for himself, and he's assured that prayer will be answered. Now, when I read the Psalms, I'm struck by something. And this was what what struck me this week. Is that how far we come short of the standard of living. Now listen, this is what struck me. How far we come short of the standard of living that God has for us, even by Old Testament standards. Even by Old Testament standards. Not to mention New Testament standards. We don't even reach the level of Old Testament saints the way we should live. Much less New Testament saints. Now why is that? I thought about this and I think there are four reasons why we are not doing what David says. In trust in God. Number one, it's because we fall, some of us might fall into that category of wickedness. We walked the novel, we got baptized, we started out good, but guess what? we rebelled against God. We shouldn't expect any of these provisions. See, God has all these provisions and we should be fully satisfied, right? Why aren't we experiencing the full satisfaction of God? Even in the midst of a recession. <coughs> Number one is maybe we are in the wicked category. God's not going to bless those that are wicked. Even though we call ourselves Christians, God calls us wicked. Maybe that's why we're not living the abundant life, even by Old Testament standards. Much less New Testament standards. Now there's a second reason. We have bad theology. Some of us have bought into a theology that says, God made earthly promises to Israel, and the promises he makes to the church are heavenly. We shouldn't expect anything earthly. That is absolute nonsense. The promises to us are as earthly as they were to Israel. The promises are not less. Okay, We have, if even if there are heavenly promises, guess what? He doesn't do away with earthly promises. In fact, the end game. So, the meek shall inherit what? The end game is the earth. We should be expecting earthly things. not saying we should expect riches and all that we want, but all of our needs should be taken care of. Were the needs of the apostles taken care of? Did any of them work a day in their life at least the last three years? God will do the same thing for us. But we need to get rid of this bad theology that says the promises of God to Israel was earthly, and the promises of God to the church is heavenly. That's just simply not true. And that's what kingdom theology is all about. And we've so much missed that. Now the third reason we don't experience all this, these blessings that God has for us, and that's because we've embraced this western mindset. In the west, we think that we, we should be self-sufficient. We don't need God. And so we are, we're self-sufficient. We, 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 you know, make sure that everything's going to be great when we retire. We save, we save, we do this, we do that, we do this, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we're very self-sufficient people. But guess what happens? Then a the crisis comes. Everything you save for, guess what? Gone. And then, in that crisis, you cry out to God, Help! So why should I help You haven't been dependent upon me any other time. See, so... Now, now let me make certain that you understand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't say. We should do all that. But guess what? That's not where we're putting our faith, is it? Where are you putting your faith? You're putting your faith in God. How about if you were born with the kind of mind that couldn't make more than $200 a week the rest of your life? Actually, from the time that you were 21 all the way up time till you retired. All you could do was... You, you had to work in just a regular, menial job. And you weren't able to save. Well, I know what you could have done. You could have trusted the Lord, couldn't you? Would He have taken care of you? Yes. And how about the person who saved a million dollars? I didn't trust the Lord. And a depression hit. Who's in better shape? <laughs> you know... It's not how much you save, it's not the kind of job you have. The point is you don't put your faith in those things. You put your faith in God, and whatever your circumstances are, God will bless you. And that's what we should be doing. And we've adopted this sort of you know self sufficient attitude of the West. Now, there's a fourth reason we don't have all that God wants for us, even according to Old Testament. Standards, much less New Testament standards. And that's because even though we're a Christian people, He only blesses according to our faith. According to your faith, what? So be it. Did you ever hear that word before? I think Jesus said something like that. According to your faith, so be it. And uh, many of us have a, a real faith issue. And we trust God. Guess what? We can trust God. This is, the, this is sort of the, the irony of it. We can trust God for salvation. Listen to this. We can trust God for eternal salvation. Is there anything bigger than eternal? We can trust God for eternal salvation. For some reason, we can't trust God for some temporal little thing that we want down here. The strange thing is how the mind work. He blesses those that demonstrate faith. So, the goal that I want to leave with you this week is, look, you know how you've trusted God so far in your life? For the temple. This week, see if you can trust Him for just a little bit more. Especially if things get really bad in this economy. And I don't think they're getting too much better. You thought they might, but now you're thinking double dip, right? Right? Can you trust him for a little bit more? Can you trust him to surprise you? Do things his way? You say, well, no, maybe I better have to hedge my No, you don't have to hedge your bets with God. God is good, and he's good all the time, and he's going to keep his covenant, and he's not going to let you down. But you have to trust him. And here's the thing it's not like you just turn up and screw up the, the ratchet, a the little ratchet up your faith. Yeah, faith is doing, not ratcheting up, faith is stepping back and going, Lord, I'm trusting you to get us through this week. I'm trusting you to do this. So, the goal for this week is to just increase your faith a little bit more by stepping back and not trusting yourself as much. So you said, if I could just, you know, I'm going to try to make a killing on the stock market. When everything's down, when everything's low, I'm going to buy. And guess what? Things have just gotten lower and lower and lower and lower. Because you trusted your own ingenuity. You know. People who uh, just put their money in cash, believe it or not, a few years ago were in better shape (laughs) than those who tried to win at the stock market. So, just let's put it this way. The important thing is that we trust God. And if we trust God, all these promises here are ours, and it's like we can draw from the reserves in the Garden of Eden. That's his promises for us. Next time, we'll look at uh, Psalm 37. Father, I thank you that you are a God that's compassionate toward us, you you are are concerned with justice, you want to do what is right and good by us, and you want us to be faithful to you, to trust you, that's all you ask, trust you, love you with all of our heart and our soul and our might, and stand back and watch great things that you can do, physical things. Health-wise, physical things, financially, right? in every area of our life, emotionally, psychologically, in our family, you can work things out. Beyond, we have no idea what you have right around the corner for us. Help us to realize, Lord, that the worst is over, and the best is to come for those of us who can get our attention focused on that. Christ's name and Christ's name.